Welcome back to Voices Unheard. My name is Marcus, and on this podcast, we give platform to the stories of those in developing countries around the world. In today's episode, I got to sit down and talk to Natalie Page. In this conversation, Natalie takes us on a journey around the world from India to Ethiopia, Yemen, Sudan, and even talk a bit about the health situation in indigenous communities in Northern Australia. Natalie brings so much insight into working in the area of emergency relief, responding to natural and man-made disasters. Natalie spent a year working in South Sudan, which, as we record, is the youngest country in the world, only forming in 2011. In these early years of South Sudan, the country has gone through conflict and faces significant health issues due to a lack of infrastructure, and Natalie brings some great insight into that space. Yeah, so my name's Natalie. My training is as a nurse and a midwife. Most recently, I've been engaged in the humanitarian sector, so working for a Swiss-based organisation called Medair, and most recently in South Sudan. What kind of work does Medair engage in? As I said, Medair is a humanitarian-based organisation. We work in the space of life-saving interventions in countries that are usually affected by conflict or natural disasters. So it's immediate interventions in those areas. It's um, an organisation based out of Switzerland, faith-based organisation. Medair works in um, difficult to reach areas, so they are often those conflict or natural disaster-related countries. They work in the sectors of health, uh, nutrition, water and sanitation, shelter and non-food items. And what's your role with Medair? My title with Medair is health advisor, which means I get to give out a lot of advice (laughs) and then people can choose to listen to it or not and act on that. So, yeah, it's basically um, I have the responsibility for the quality and the strategic direction of the health program in the country that I'm placed in. Part of that is in the reproductive health area, but it also um, encompasses children under five, public health programs, community-based programming. So I guess, yeah, in a sector that has limited resources, we're always focusing on the most vulnerable people and ordinarily in the countries that I'm working in, that's children under five and women. So it's predominantly healthcare for those people. You've spent a lot of your life working in the humanitarian and social justice space. Not many people engage in this kind of work. It's not really a typical career path that you would think of, but I'm sure there must be a passion or a drive behind your work. When were you first exposed to the needs of people in developing countries? Yeah, so it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't think I even knew the term social justice when I became aware of it. So it was just, I guess, an exposure in the 80s. The famine in Ethiopia was very topical. Obviously, that was Band-Aid time when they were doing, you know, live aid for um, support to Ethiopia. Yeah, there wasn't, I guess, the saturation of news and the breadth and scope of news around the world that we see today that you can be exposed to. So that was pretty major news in the 80s, the famine in Ethiopia. That was kind of... Yeah, what alerted me to a massive injustice in the world where I was comfortable and okay and doing well and then yet there were people who were starving and dying for lack of food in a in a world of abundance, I guess. So yeah, it was probably during during that time, I would say. So yeah, I guess that was high school years back then. So you were exposed to the famine and drought in Ethiopia during your time in high school. What was your journey from being a high school student 
on to then working internationally in this kind of field? I guess it was a bit of an impatient journey, if I'm honest. (laughs) Yeah, patience is definitely not my strong suit. And I guess I had quite a sense of urgency of wanting to go out and do something and uh, to be involved a really, yeah, a really strong desire to do that. So I guess I fast-tracked as much as I could. So I went to uni, studied nursing, and um, then even before really <laughs> working as a nurse, I went over to India because I couldn't afford to go to Ethiopia at that, that stage and India was a bit more accessible. So yeah, I guess I, I dived into India to try my hand in that space to see how how things went. I was as green as the grass. I didn't know anything when I first (laughs) embarked on that, but it doesn't mean that you don't have something to contribute and you can't be used. And yeah, I'm not sure how much I helped other people, but I certainly learned and grew myself in those early days. Back in those days when there were no mobile phones and um, yeah, not even credit card, no emails. I don't think the internet existed then even. Certainly not laptops and tablets. Yeah, it was a big thing, I I guess, to go. Of course, you don't think so at the time because you're just living your life and, and doing it. Yeah, when I think back now, my poor mum, just, you know, I'm just taking off on a big jumbo jet over to India and I might find a payphone to be able to call her and say I've arrived safely um, or write an aerogram that she will get four weeks later that says I've arrived in India. Yeah, it was a bit of a different world for sure. I do remember even in in the world then that was so much bigger, I guess, because you, you weren't as contactable and in touch as you are now. Um I used to be a youth leader at the church I was going to then at the time and um, I remember the youth pastor connected me with someone in India because I was arriving in Delhi in the middle of the night and then catching a bus. I don't know why I thought it was a good idea to catch a bus overnight to get up to the village that I was going to. But yeah, so he organised for someone in India, some random person, to meet me and help me get on the right bus at the bus stop. So I took a taxi from the airport to this massively crazy bus station in Delhi. And uh, yeah, there was um, some Indian gentleman there who saw me onto the right bus and off I went in the middle of the night up into the hills of the lower foothills of the the mountains, the Himalayas. So it was a bit of an adventure. (laughs) Yeah, we were certainly moving around villages, so a lot of travel out to yeah, small communities within India and it was a lot of community teaching and training, just taking healthcare to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to access it. I then went on and stayed in Calcutta for, yeah, probably another month after that and ended up working with the missionaries of charity in their leprosy home. So for people who had leprosy, they were segregated, um, so they had an area quite a way out of Calcutta where people would, they would sew the saris for the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's order, have vegetable gardens and small fish ponds. So they were, and schools for the children of, who had parents with leprosy. So yeah, I worked there in a dressing clinic, just dressing limbs of lepers, I guess, who had ulcers or injuries yeah, so just dressings all all day long. But yeah, it was it was so brilliant. And um yeah, I think significantly you feel like you become a part of that 
community of people who are really shunned and on the outer, um, they can often be really quite welcoming of people. So, yeah, that was a really, really significant at the time. Yeah. Having grown up in Australia and then going to India for the first time in your early 20s, was there anything that you found really confronting? I think the mass of humanity in India was always, yeah, it's just inescapable and super confronting. I think when you come from a country like Australia where everyone has so much space and uh, you're in Perth, the world's biggest country town, um, I used to catch the train quite early in the morning and I'd have to walk on the road because the footpath was just, it was people's bedrooms. So you'd have to kind of step over everybody sleeping on the footpath on your way to the train station early in the morning. What was it like coming back to Australia after India? I remember when I first came back from, yeah, it was from India and, um, I went to a breakfast and at the end of the breakfast, yeah, I can't remember, for some reason we were changing venues going somewhere else and someone had hired a stretch limousine to go from the breakfast to the next place. And I remember I was so, so I was maybe 22, 23, and I was so just like affronted by this absolute waste and excess that we would travel in this stretch limousine from one place to the other when obviously the person was just trying to do a nice treat and do something nice for everyone so I walked (laughs) I didn't didn't even get in the limousine I'm like Nat that's so ungracious (laughs) and really what did that achieve other than making me look like a bit of a tool (laughs) and probably quite ungrateful so yeah but I remember feeling really like this is outrageous and how dare we do this kind of thing and people are starving (laughs) so yeah I think I've perhaps moved on or maybe not from that kind of a reaction and that perhaps not so useful stance (laughs) that I took at the time. But, um, yeah, you know, interestingly, it's you perhaps have to grapple more when you come back than when you go. So you expect differences when you go away and uh, you think things will be different and you expect to be confronted by things. But I guess it's when you come back to your familiar environment, yeah, that's when I've feel things the most, I guess, and find things the most confronting. Um, So it's just recognising that that is going to happen and taking the time to to work through that. So you studied nursing, then went straight to India and worked for a few months, came back to Australia, and then what was next? Yeah, Ethiopia was the, the second stop, and I guess that for me was... Yeah, again, I just heard um, someone speaking at the church I was going to and thought wow, that sounds exactly like what I want to do. They're working in a hospital in Ethiopia. There's no one there. The workload is massive. This hospital had been closed for lots of years and so people were walking for hours and days to come and get care at the hospital in Ethiopia. So after after the service, I just asked them if I could go and work with them in Ethiopia. <laughs> because you couldn't send an email then remember there were no such things as emails so you had to strike when you had the opportunity and they were like yeah sure (laughs) so I guess it wasn't that simple I did do interviews and have a bit of an induction process yeah then I went over to Ethiopia so I was there for 12 months and yeah that was a 
massively overwhelming, crazy time with a workload that never stops, with needs that will never be met, yeah, where you feel just so super under-resourced given the needs that are that are coming at you every day. Was Ethiopia what you expected it to be? Was the famine like what you saw on TV during your high school years? Um, so it wasn't the famine of the 80s, so now we're in the 90s, but the area where I was, um, Sodu Waleta, in the south of Ethiopia, it was called the land of the green famine. So when you looked around, everything was green, but it wasn't green with crops that you could eat. So it was all cash crops. So people were still, despite the the production and the cropping that was going on, people were still definitely hungry. But it was really just this lack of access to healthcare that people had had for years and years. So uh, yeah, people just turning up with the most amazing things that had gone untreated for years yeah things that I had never seen in Australia because people can access healthcare so readily and quickly and easily so just the yeah being able to access you know when you feel a small lump you can go and get it checked out rather than it becoming a big gross malformation on your body years and years later Um, and then yeah obviously it's much more difficult to treat those things and yeah the success in treating things like that is a lot less than if you find them early yeah so yeah just that out and out lack of access to services because it was a poor region of um, Ethiopia I guess doctors didn't particularly want to go to that area of Ethiopia so Ethiopian trained doctors would rather be in other areas than go to Sodu Waleta so it was a bit of a marginalized area So after a year of work in Ethiopia, what was next? When I was in Ethiopia, people at that stage said it's been great to have you here, but what would even be better is if you had midwifery skills because so much of the work, as I spoke about with MedAir, the work focuses on the most vulnerable, which is children under five and women. Just the fact that women have children makes their their whole life in in those countries much higher risk um, because of everything that can happen during pregnancy and childbirth. So at that point um, I decided I would turn to Australia and do my midwifery which hadn't really interested me much as a student when I was a nurse. We did a a small amount of midwifery but um, I loved it. Uh, It's just I would never not be a midwife now. I think it's just one of the most amazing jobs that you can have. I don't know why everybody's not a midwife really. (laughs) It's such a privileged position to have and such an amazing place to be with with families at that time. Yeah, even begrudgingly, though I was when uh, I decided to do midwifery, it was, yeah, probably one of the best best decisions that I made or best directions that I was given. With your new midwifery qualifications, what was the next stop for you? I kind of realised that I knew a little bit about the rest of the world and working in other countries, but I hadn't really had much experience in the Australian healthcare system. So yeah, for quite some years I worked in the north of Australia in Indigenous health, yeah, which is possibly one of the hardest jobs I've done but yeah I think really important to have done that and to get a better understanding of yeah I guess even those social justice issues in my own country uh, when feeling so passionate about those kind of issues overseas 
the first case of um, kwashiorkor malnutrition, so the malnutrition where children get quite edematous and, and, and swollen, the first time I ever saw that was in Australia, up in the north of Western Australia. Yeah, I was still treating, I remember one lady with leprosy, so we used to just make sure she was compliant with medication. So, yeah, the question is, have you seen malnutrition in Ethiopia? And I'm telling stories about working with people with leprosy in India. But I was seeing the same things here in Australia. Yeah, so I did that for for quite some years. And then, um, yeah, just had an opportunity through a scheme with the West Australian Government Health System, if you took a uh, 20% deduction in your pay on the fifth year of working for WA Country Health, you had a year off paid. So then I thought I might go and learn Arabic because I was still interested in this global health, um, but thought it would be super useful to be able to communicate with people a little better than what I had managed in my previous encounters. So um, by then there was the internet had been invented. So I I could Google and find um, Arabic schools. So yeah, decided to go to Yemen where I thought, uh, I think I can live quite cheaply for quite a long period of time. And I don't think many people speak English, so I will really have to embrace Arabic and learn that. So yeah, I went there and studied Arabic for a couple of years and interspersed that with some work at the same time. I'm really interested, what was Yemen like? Because there's so much conflict in Yemen at the moment. What was it like when you first visited well, maybe people don't know anything about Yemen when you say the the country Yemen. It's not super high profile, uh, but I guess there is an awareness now of the the war that's going on and has been going on for several years. When I went to Yemen, people didn't really know much about it. People would think of it as a yeah a predominantly Muslim country. And also the thing I think that was well known then was kidnappings. So there were kidnappings in Yemen and people would often mention that to me when I would say I was going to Yemen. I mean, yeah, the other thing that everybody always knows about Yemen is it's where Osama bin Laden was born. So, yeah, it, I guess it was never super stable or completely safe. But, yeah, when I first went to Yemen, it, you couldn't see what was happening happening now yeah or you might not have guessed that that's where the country would end up you just mentioned kidnappings really casually do you worry about these things like what goes on in your head when you're preparing for a trip (laughs) maybe not enough goes on in my head (laughs) before I go to make me think there is an element of risk I guess but I always think things can happen and you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time and I remember I say to people I often feel more safe when I'm in a place like Yemen than when I'm in Perth like I could be walking the streets any time of the day or night in Yemen nothing's gonna happen to me probably in terms of deciding to go I guess I don't really have that process or think oh gosh my life could really be in danger if I go to this country because I I I've only ever gone places where I really feel like it's the place I'm meant to be going. So I have a real sense of peace about going and it feels like the right thing to do. I guess it's just the nature of the work when you do humanitarian 
work, they're the countries that you go to that are conflict affected or natural disaster affected. And yeah, to be honest, I think a lot of people that do this work, it's not the driving force, but there's an element of adrenaline. I don't know whether it's adrenaline seeking or, but you know, I think midwives are some of the most adrenaline seeking professionals on the planet. Like there's no adrenaline rush, like being involved in a birth. Yeah, it impacts a lot, I guess, on what I do, and but it's not the thing I'm thinking about most before I go away. I remember my niece when I went to South Sudan, she said to me, oh, Annie Nat, I just Googled um, South Sudan and you know it's not even in the top three most dangerous places in the world to go. And she was like surprised because I was going and it wasn't even in the top three. <laughs> so other people are perhaps thinking about it more. And I guess it's, you know, the the notion, the, the more you do this, the more used of things you become. And I guess you get used of living with a certain level of insecurity or a certain aspect of having limitations on your freedom and what you can do. And that, you know, you can't walk outdoors or you have a curfew or you're signing your name on a board every time you leave a building. So people know where you're going and you're calling in every two hours when you're out in the field. So Medair as an organisation, when I've worked with them, have uh, they take security super seriously. Sometimes we think too seriously. But, um, yeah, you know that you're in an organisation that has good checks and balances and, yeah, I've been pulled out of areas because people think things might turn or go a certain way, so um, being proactive course there's always a chance that you can be caught out but um yeah I also trust Medair as an organization when I'm working for them and um they yeah have security people that are looking in more detail at things um so yeah so you spent some time in Yemen how did you go on to find and work with Medair so I remember all you know going to India going to Ethiopia um i put my foot in the water for a little while in Botswana. But it was never really kind of the fit that I was looking for. I guess it was always enjoyable and and good, but it just wasn't quite what I thought I was meant to be doing. And when I was in Yemen, some people there told me about Medair and I was like, wow, this sounds exactly like what I've had in my mind of what I wanted to be doing or where I thought I was going. Yeah, started to look into Medair as an organisation. They had a position for a reproductive health manager in Sudan, in Darfur. So, yeah, I applied for that position and I guess that started the journey with Medair. So what was Sudan like when you went? Because when you worked in Sudan, it would have been just before it divided into two countries, Sudan and South Sudan. Could you feel the tension or a heightened security threat whilst you were there? Yeah, so that was a really interesting program because the insecurity was so massively high and we lived in a a compound and the only time I ever went out of the compound was we drove to the office, which was, I don't know, maybe 200 metres from the compound and every night you would lock your metal door and put a big bar over the metal door and everywhere you looked you had barbed wire. So it was a fairly intense level of security and insecurity in Darfur. I um, 
travelled to my health program locations in helicopter because that was the only way to get around the risk of losing four-wheel drive vehicles and of, yeah, the Mujahideen, the kind of rebels in that area, of them accessing and wanting your four-wheel drives was so high that, yeah, you, you travelled by helicopter. So, yeah, that was, that was with Darfur until the government who didn't like the fact that I was a midwife and thought that I perhaps was spying on their activities in Darfur and looking at gender-based violence as a weapon of war, which I wasn't doing, (laughs) but that was their notion. So they revoked my work permit for Darfur. So yeah, I went to another area of Sudan then, South Kordofan, which is right on the border with South Sudan and Sudan. So it was in a fairly disputed area between the two countries, although they were one country then. But yeah, and Meda had set up there thinking, knowing that South Sudan was moving towards independence, so thinking this could be a highly contentious area and there might be trouble, there's massive needs in terms of health, we can program here now and set ourselves up in case conflict comes and we're already in the area and and have a presence. Did you ever experience conflict yourself? Um, Yeah, yeah, I did. And it was one of those situations where things almost change overnight. I do remember some tanks rolled into town, like it's just a tiny town in the middle of nowhere really, And I remember thinking, oh, that's a little bit unusual (laughs) to have tanks in the main street. So I remember ringing the head office in Khartoum and saying, hey, just a couple of tanks have rolled into town and I wonder if I should send staff home just so if anything happens, people are home from work and, you know, they can get their kids out of school and things. So they were like, yeah, Nat, good idea. So we closed the office early that day and then... I remember, and it might seem strange given that there are a couple of tanks in town, but I thought, oh, I'll just go for a run <laughs> this afternoon <laughs> because it's a pretty good stress outlet running and I used to run a lot in uh, the Sudan program and you could run. I thought, oh, let me just see what's in the metal box that I can cook up for dinner tonight. So I was just getting a few bits and pieces out of that metal box and then it just, it was game on. It Guns explode like it, I thought I am in a war it it just turned like that it just turned so quickly I was in in that base for maybe two or three days just we couldn't move we were in the safe room could hear people running in the streets I even you know I could be like oh that's a semi-automatic weapon oh that's a tank oh that's a grenade like I was had become familiar after a few days with what sort of weapons were around and being used and Medair in Khartoum were trying to broker a deal through the UN to have a ceasefire to get some people out of the situation, myself included. Unfortunately, the UN forgot our compound and so they did the big evacuation of organisations and people and somehow myself and my colleague who were there waiting to be evacuated just waited and waited Like, I think they've forgotten us, (laughs) which they had indeed. We stayed, it was another night and day, and um, yeah, I remember the office in Khartoum said, okay, Nat, the UN are saying it's okay to go, you can leave the compound, you can drive out. I was like, I held, held the phone up saying, can you guys hear this? Like, this does not sound like a ceasefire to me. And it was just cut, 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 guns. And I said, really, you want me to, like 
drive out into that. So I hadn't been anywhere except in and out of the safe room for three days. And now people were saying, so open the gates of your compound and drive out. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so I remember the guy I was with, he was like, no, nah, I don't, I don't think I can do it. Like I literally don't, I'm too scared to physically be able to do this. And we were in contact with a South African guy who was with the demining group and he also hadn't been collected with the, the UN evacuation. And he was like, Nat, I'll come past your place. I'll toot the horn twice. As soon as you hear the horn, open it and we'll just go. I was like, okay, I think I can do this. So that's exactly what happened. He came past, we opened the gates and out we drove. And I remember I like, because it's a Muslim country, so you're always covered and I had my headscarf and I remember taking that off because it was a Medair, had Medair branding on it and I tied it to the aerial and we had this masking tape that was Medair branded and we tied it all around the car, stuck it everywhere just to try and make people, whoever these people were that were fighting, know who Medair was. I'm sure they had no idea who Medair was but we thought this masking tape on the side of the car might afford us some protection. So, yeah, so we just drove out and that is the only, yeah, it's the only time in my life I've ever seen anything like that. You know, I felt like I was on a, a movie with just everything seemed to be on fire and there were just people streaming down the roads running and there were just streams and streams and streams of people. And I remember, literally remember soldiers everywhere but they just waved us through. We just went. So the South African guy in his car and, and myself and my colleague in our car, and we just drove. But it was just to drive off safely in a vehicle when other people are just running for their lives next to you. And I knew that I was driving to the UN compound, which was only four kilometres out of town. But, yeah, it's a bit of a bittersweet feeling in a way that, you're getting out and you're safe and you're okay, but everybody else is kind of on their own and, yeah, it's like good luck, we're out of here. It, was, it wasn't my best experience, to be fair. Yeah, and it took me quite some time to work through that. Staff were constantly ringing me to see if I was okay. So they were still ringing me even when I was in the UN compound relatively safe and they were in their homes with people potentially wanting to kill them and I remember even when I was leaving I couldn't tell them that I was getting on a plane I just felt so guilt-stricken to say you know it's okay I'm being flown out I'm safe I'll catch up with you later like I just, I just couldn't even say it. I just had to say, yeah, you know, everything's okay. I'm safe. I'm good. But I couldn't bring myself to tell them that I was jumping on a plane and leaving them to it. You're listening to Voices Unheard with Natalie Page, who works with Medair, a humanitarian organisation working to relieve human suffering in remote and devastated areas around the world, particularly areas affected by war and natural disasters. Natalie's training is as a nurse and a midwife and works as a health advisor and has just returned from working for a year in South Sudan. I asked Natalie from her experience in the health sector, what is the greatest medical need in South Sudan? Um, yes, yeah, so I think the greatest need is 
just being able to access quality healthcare services. So either you can't access anything or you can go to a building but there's no supplies or you can go to a building but there's nobody there, the clinics just close because people aren't getting paid, not turning up to work. So just accessing services is a massive challenge. And then, yeah, it's nothing surprising in South Sudan. So for children under five, the um, main health issues are always diarrhoea, malaria and pneumonia. Um, so that's what children die of mostly in those countries. And then for women, it's yeah, pregnancy and childbirth related issues. So South Sudan has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. Kind of meaningful way to remember it for me is those little... Um, matatus or minibuses that run around the country is the equivalent of one of those full of women a day that die from pregnancy or childbirth related injuries so that's every single day that's happening there's chronic diseases but people might not necessarily live long enough for that to be the biggest burden of disease in countries like south sudan but yeah it's definitely those under five kids under five and um, pregnant women do you have any memorable success stories from your work with Medair? It's interesting, isn't it, to think of success stories in yeah countries where sometimes you wonder if you're making any difference at all because the needs are so massively great. You know, last year in um, South Sudan, we did massive amounts of measles vaccination campaigns. So we've got these huge numbers when we report back to donors. So we're saying, um, oh, we vaccinated over 200,000 children against measles. We've just vaccinated 75,000 people against cholera. So those numbers sound impressive and successful in a way, and they are in their own right because we've protected all those kids um, against potential measles. But I think for me, when I think of success stories, it's really more just about the individual. Yeah, a mum who tells me that she sleeps at night now, she's got a um, nine-year-old girl, she hasn't slept for years because she's always waking up at night to make sure her daughter isn't fitting, she has epilepsy. So now that she's been able to access treatment for the first time ever, she can sleep at night now because she's not worried that her daughter is going to have a fit in the middle of the night. I think that's a massive success. That's a crazy impact on someone's life. I remember it was in 2011 in the same place, so it was really nice to be able to go back in 2020 to places I'd been in 2011 when we were just setting up programs. And I remember this really um, super malnourished little boy that came through the program in 2011 we were able to refer him on to a hospital from our little tent clinic. And I remember visiting this little boy every day and every time I went, his mum would be there. And one day I went, he wasn't there and he passed away. I was like, oh, what did we achieve there? Like what, did we just prolong his life in the end? Really, what what did we do? And uh, then I was doing another in the same area, we were just measuring the rates of malnutrition. So we were measuring um, arm circumference on children. You do a certain number, randomly selected kids, and it gives you a bit of a proxy value of the um, rates of malnutrition. So you literally spin a pen on the ground and go to the house in the direction that it points. And I remember going into one of these houses quite in a village quite far from where we had set up, and it was the mother of the boy who had died from malnutrition. We'd just randomly spun the pen and gone to her house and I was like, oh, this is 
terrible. <laughs> like I've just come to see her. We couldn't help her. Her son ended up dying. She was so pleased to see the team and all she wanted to do was to thank us and tell us how grateful she was that someone had tried to save her son, that we had been there, that she had somewhere to go, that there was somewhere where she could take her son. So I'm thinking even that is a small success in the outcome was not what anyone would have wanted, but this mother was able to do something or felt she could do something for her son, that she'd taken him somewhere, that people had tried to help him, that rather than just watching the inevitable unfold, she felt respected and cared for and that her son had been treated well. There may be people who are listening to this podcast who are interested in working in the humanitarian sector. What field of study should they pursue if they want to work in this space? Yeah, so you do need to take on something. It's not just okay to be like, oh, I have um, some education and I have the means to travel somewhere so I can go and help people. I think you do need to be thinking about what value you're adding in going. Uh, So what can you contribute? So for health, it seems fairly easy to have a health qualification and go. So the obvious things are nursing, midwifery, medicine, but then perhaps some of the things that people don't always think about, like in the South Sudan program at the moment, there's an epidemiologist working with Medair. Uh, We've got people trained in pharmacy that are working it's becoming bigger and bigger in this sector, the psychosocial needs. So psychologists, really broadly, health is a great platform to move with. But even in South Sudan now, the government is looking for people with master's qualifications in those areas. So they're saying, and maybe rightly so, you know, we have qualified nurses in South Sudan, so why do we need you from Australia and that to come and work here? Something in health. Yeah, I think some of the things that perhaps aren't so, you don't think of so immediately, but, you know, we do a lot of monitoring and evaluation, so there's always um, space for people who have qualifications in that area who can roll out studies, who can do large-scale evaluations of projects, Everybody has a computer, so information technology is a massive part of keeping people doing what they're doing. Human resources, finance, you know, all of those kind of not peripheral but support capacities. And then, yeah, as you move through the sectors, so in shelter it's always people with engineering backgrounds. There's a lot of logistics that goes on to help people be able to implement programs. So training in humanitarian logistics is is just such a specialized area and there's always a shortage of people with those sorts of qualifications um nutritionists uh, yeah i mean it's just it's super diverse i think people always think of the health needs and that's kind of a simple one but yeah it is all the support mechanisms that so there's a lot i think a lot of um varied occupations and paths that you can take But I think it is important to have something, (laughs) yeah, to go with something. One of the biggest lessons I've learned, I think, is, you know, I can go and do my midwifery, but then when I leave, those skills have left with me. So the biggest thing I can do, and it was one of the lessons I took out of 
South Kordofan when we had to to leave was just how important it is to share your skills and build up local capacity because I do have that Australian passport. I will always be going. People will be staying. So, yeah, the ability to teach others and impart your knowledge and skills is probably one of the most important things you can do rather than actually doing it, whatever that is. But, yeah, just to be able to build up capacity of other people. Having travelled so much and spent significant amounts of time away from Australia, do you feel like you've missed out on anything in life? Yeah, I know. I was thinking about this um, answer again too because I think when we did speak about it previously, and I, I, you know, it's very much true, I was of the opinion like, no, it's really just been a process of enrichment. Um, So having these experiences and, yeah, it's still really does blow my mind sometimes when I'm sitting in a tiny village in a little hut and someone's making me a cup of tea and giving me the best crate or best mat or whatever in their house to sit on and I just think wow this is an unbelievable privilege that I'm even here that I can you know the process to even be able to be in this person's life to share a moment with them. So for me, it's super enriching and yeah, I think just value adding to my life. I think you do miss some things, of course, you know, I've missed a lot of weddings of friends when I've been away, a lot of significant moments, um, friends having kids, just Uh, I miss my mum's 60th birthday, (laughs) you know, things like that. So, yes, of course, there is an element of cost, but anything that's worth something costs something, right? So there's got to be a trade-off. So I think to be, you know, all glossy and dismissive and to say, no, there's been no cost and I haven't missed anything is a little bit too simplified because, yeah, you, you do miss out on things for sure. But overall, no, it's just so enriching. The experiences are so enriching. And even when I think oh, people will be listening and don't even know what I'm talking about, <laughs> then I think that just, is just shows me that the experiences I've had and the opportunities uh, to go to these places have just added a whole different dimension to how I view the world and see life, I guess. So, yeah, yeah, it's... Um, It's a real privilege, I would say, yeah. That was my conversation with Natalie Page. I'm so grateful for Natalie for sharing her insights into the medical field with Medair. If you're interested in finding out more about Medair or donating to their relief work, check out their website at medair.org. Thank you for joining the conversation on this podcast, Voices Unheard. I want to challenge you to think of two people who would benefit from hearing about Medair and Natalie's work around the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends, family, or on social media. That would really help this podcast and raise awareness for the different organizations featured. Thank you for joining the conversation. We'll see you next time.